As we continue in our summer series through Isaiah, I invite you to find your copy of the Word of God and open up to Isaiah chapter 9, where we will be spending our time in Isaiah 9, verses 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. And I'd like for us to read this passage together as we start off and do something a little different. Uh, So I apologize if you're already comfortable in your seat. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the Word of God together. Uh, And there's going to be a moment of response that I'm asking from all of us, that we will read one section together, and you'll see that section as it's a standalone uh, slide as we go through. But Isaiah 9, verse 8 through 10, 4, this is the word of God. Let us read it. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. Now let us read this together. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men, and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Let us read together. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of the hosts, the land is scorched. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. The sliced meat on the right but are still hungry. And they devour on the left but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. And Ephraim devours Manasseh. And together they are against Judah. Let us read. For all this his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. And the writers who keep writing oppression. To turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. Let us read together. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. Thanks be for the word of the Lord. You may be seated. On March 17th of 1980, a radical thing took place in the state of Washington. Uh, Something that hadn't taken place for about 123 years. It started when an earthquake registering 4.1 on the Richter scale was reported near Mount St. Helens in southwest Washington. Forest rangers were notified of possible dangers that could happen, including the ultimate eruption of Mount St. Helens. And scientists flew in from all over to assess the explosive potential of the mountain, and they painted a frightening picture. 
and residents were warned to evacuate. Living on that mountain was an old man named Harry. Now, Harry had lived on that mountain for quite some time with 16 cats. And Harry bragged, nobody knows more about this mountain than Harry. It don't dare blow up on him. And when sheriff's deputies ordered Harry to leave, he responded by saying, I am having a heck of a time living alone here. I'm kind of, I'm the king of all that I survey. I've got plenty of whiskey and I've got food enough for 15 years. I'm sitting high on the hog. I'm not going anywhere. And Harry didn't. He stayed put. He stayed in the lodge, convinced that scientists were wrong and the warnings were overkill. Because in the words of Harry, after all that this mountain has been burping up the last few weeks, it ain't got nothing left. Well, on May 18th, Mount St. Helens did erupt. And sadly, Harry was one of the 57 individuals who did not heed the warning and ultimately lost their lives as a result. There's great danger, great costs attached to neglecting warnings, isn't there? As we continue through the summer series of Isaiah, we now come into a passage where judgment is being spoken of to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And a warning is given from God regarding his coming judgment on the wickedness of Israel. And really the question that is before us today as we engage this text is the same question that was before Israel as they heard this warning. Will they receive and accept the warning from the word of the Lord or will they reject it? It's the same thing for us week in and week out. We come here, we sit in these pews, we hear the word of God taught every single week. We hear the warnings, we hear the encouragements, but do we hear the Lord? Do we refuse or do we accept those things that we hear from the word of the Lord as, is, as it is taught to us each week? Because really there's no neutral response when the word of God is proclaimed. When God speaks, you are either in a posture of surrender to his truth and to his reign, or you are in an intentional posture of refusal. There is no middle ground. And we may find ourselves, as we reject God and his teachings, intentionally setting ourselves up against his reign and against his rule, which, by the way, is the very definition of wickedness. And in doing so, as we set ourselves up against God, we actually set ourselves up to receive the judgment of God. God is not passive towards wickedness. Our structure for today uh, will be answering three questions that come out of Isaiah 9 as we looked at it. And those three questions are this. What was the word of the Lord that Israel heard? Secondly, what are the indictments given against Israel? And lastly, how has God's anger stayed in his hand, a hand of blessing, rather than a hand of wrath? So let's begin by looking at the first section, Isaiah 9, verses 8 uh, through verse 12, and answer the question of what is the word of the Lord that was given to Israel? The nation of Israel had been warned for centuries regarding faithfulness to God. 
If you're familiar at all with the story of the Old Testament, you're familiar with Israel and how they were delivered by God and wandered in the wilderness, yet were warned time and time again on what it meant to follow after God, but they refused. They were a stiff-necked people. And God had warned them again and again. He had protected them from the attacks of neighboring nations. He had freed them from slavery. And as God cared for Israel as his own, he called them to be a people after his own heart. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God says explicitly to Israel that they shall be to him a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. See, they are to be a people who served him as their king, who obeyed him as their king, who celebrated him as their king, and passed on, surrendered to him as their king from one generation to the next. By the way, that same call that God gave to Israel in Exodus, he gives to us in the New Testament when we read in 1 Peter 2.9 that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession so that we may then be actively proclaiming the excellencies who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's a call upon us as God's people, and that is to be faithful to him. He calls us with that same desire with which he called Israel. But even as we started off our time today, warnings and instructions are not often heeded, are they? We often ignore warnings and often our identity is forgotten. And this is what was happening with Israel. For as they prospered and grew and as they warred among other nations and as they took the other nation's identity as their own instead of as the nation of God, the word of God came to them through prophets. And so Israel receives from prophets the word of the Lord. Specifically, let's look at two. The first being Amos. Amos was a contemporary of Isaiah and spoke to Israel during this time. And he says in Isaiah chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, Israel does not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, therefore thus says the Lord, an adversary shall surround the land and shall bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. There is judgment coming for Israel's wickedness. In Hosea, he speaks judgment as well in Hosea 13, 1 through 3, when he says, when Ephraim spoke, which by the way, Ephraim is another name for Israel. It's the largest tribe of the northern kingdom. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. He incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window." A temporary existence because of the judgment of God. This warning had been given to Israel. It was a word of the Lord to Israel. And it was a word of the Lord carrying with it the authority of the Lord and the action of the Lord. And God is saying to Israel, if my people continue to seek other gods and continue to align themselves with other nations, and if they continue to forsake my way, then they will experience the judgment of the holy God as the other nations will eradicate them. God is not passive 
towards wickedness. And so what Israel must now understand as they heard the word of the Lord coming to them is this, and it's perhaps something that we need to understand. Israel needs to understand that it isn't the Assyrians or other nations that they must fear. They aren't the concern. Assyria will not determine Israel's final destiny. Yahweh will. It is to him and to him alone that Israel must be concerned. And so in the past and in the present, Israel has exhibited behaviors reflective of their ignorance of God's call upon them. And so for the remainder of Isaiah 9 through chapter 10, verse 4, God levies specific indictments against Israel, saying, this is why you will receive my judgment. And so let's look at these four indictments that are given to us in the rest of this chapter. And they begin in verse 9. And each indictment concludes with the phrase that we all read together. So let's look at verse 9 for indictment number 1. The first indictment is that Israel is prideful and arrogant against God and his judgment. The people know the Lord, uh, as, the people, as the word of the Lord was brought to Israel, and the people know the word of the Lord being brought to them. You can see that in verse 9, that all the people will know. So the word has been spread, yet they respond to the word of the Lord in arrogance and in pride coming from their heart. Look at the words of the scriptures in front of you in verse 10. Israel hears the word of the Lord and responds by saying, if the bricks fall, we'll rebuild them. And we'll rebuild them with dressed stones, better stones. We'll make improvements. And if the sycamores are cut down, well, we'll build will plant cedars because, well, they're superior trees and we wanted cedars there anyway. The issue with pride and arrogance towards God for Israel is that it reveals some very, very core fractures in their heart. And for us, when we respond in pride and arrogance towards God, that fracture reveals itself in our heart as well. For Israel, when they responded towards God, it is obvious that God is no longer feared for them. Fracture number one. God is no longer feared. For the words reflect a casual approach towards what might be coming destruction at the hand of God. God promises destruction. God promises other nations to come in. Their response, God's judgment won't be that bad. We can rebuild. And secondly, Israel does not view their sin and wickedness as the issue at hand. The issue isn't their wickedness or their sin. There's no mention of change or surrender. There's only a mention of their ability to deal with God's coming judgment. And that's what pride and arrogance before the Lord does, doesn't it? Pride and arrogance will cause us to only hear what we want to hear from God. If we hear him at all. In verse 11, we see that Israel, in their pride and in their arrogance, has set up an alliance with a king by the name of Rezin. And Rezin was the king of a nation called Aram. And Aram was the nation that separated Israel from Assyria, serving as a bit of a buffer. And so they made an alliance with Rezin. And they trusted in Rezin instead of the Almighty God. And we see in verse 11 that God says, Well, Rezin will be gone. And all the other adversaries in Israel's history and in their present 
will have open reign to consume Israel. In their pride and arrogance, the people of God did not believe the warnings of God and instead operated in stubborn resistance against the will of God. God is not passive towards wickedness. And so we read, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. And so we continue on with the indictments in verse 13. These people, oh, these people, what do they do in the face of judgment? Well, they do not turn to God. They do not inquire of God. What's wrong with them? My first response when I read that was that, and very quickly it turned to, what's wrong with me? Instead of turning to God, what do these people do? What do we do in the midst of these moments? Well, they began to trust in leaders that were reflective of their own hearts, their own prideful and arrogant hearts. And so their leadership was prideful and arrogant. And if we know anything right now, we can attest that prideful and arrogant leaders are dangerous sorts. And so indictment number two against Israel is this. Rather than trust in the holy God, the people of Israel followed and trusted in sinful and misguided leaders. You see, Israel has sub substituted following the holy God for following leaders who are actively leading them astray and swallowing them up in verse 16. See, both politically and spiritually, these leaders are misleading the nation. And the nation is willfully following. And the implications continue on in verse 17 where we read that the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. See, God's judgment on his people is often found in the removal of his blessing and in the removal of his protective presence and the allowance of wickedness to consume a culture. And when the people of God follow the leaders of this world over the God who made this world, then there is inevitably wickedness that will be among God's people. And the result, these people, verse 18, I'm sorry, verse 17, will be known as a people who are wicked. And they speak folly. It's not just trivial speaking. Folly isn't just joking around. In this particular passage, this word actually carries much more weight to it. It means one who is perverting the truth. It means one who is actually calling evil good and good evil. It's a sad state when the people of God would follow and trust in misguided leaders who pervert truth and teach falsely rather than to surrender to the reign and rule of the almighty and holy God and take him at his word. God is not passive towards wickedness. And so we read, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Indictment 3, verse 18. Indictment 1 tells us that you are prideful and arrogant. Indictment 2 says, in your pride and arrogance you follow leaders who lead you astray. The third indictment is this, Israel is now known for its wickedness, not its worship. Israel is known for its Wickedness, not its worship. Maybe you've heard the phrase playing with fire before. Maybe your parents have said that to you. It often means that the thing that you're doing could potentially be dangerous. It could turn out bad for you. 
at some point, so be alert. Well, in verse 18, Isaiah takes the gloves off and speaks to the reality that sin is no playing with fire. Wickedness is nothing to be scoffed at or to minimize. Sin is not playing with fire. It is a full-fledged consuming fire in the heart of one who embraces it. I wonder if we would agree at the significance of wickedness, the significance of sin. Or are we thinking it's just playing with fire? See, wickedness and sin is a rebellion, is an intentional rebellion against God's order for life. And as such, if you engage willfully in sinful behavior and wickedness, embracing it as your own, you are embracing the anti-God way of living. And it is always destructive in life. And as wickedness spreads in Israel, verses 19 through 21, itemize the effects of wickedness in Israel. We read that no one spares another. All are either in the process of consuming one another or being consumed. There is conflict from within. They are devouring one another without satisfaction. That's the thing about wickedness. It never satisfies. And they ultimately are devouring themselves. There's a splitting and a fracturing of spiritual brothers as Ephraim and Manasseh devour one another. And then they join together to devour Judah. There's this conflict from within. And we see a people who God chose and gave purpose to in Genesis 12 when he called Abraham. God called the Israelites and he said they will be a people of blessing to the nations. Well, now this nation of Israel has fallen prey to the effects of wickedness and is now known more for their self-destruction and for their division than anything else. They no longer represent the God who called them, but rather represent the wickedness of the culture around them. And they experience and live firsthand the effects of that wickedness. You see, when God's people begin to delight themselves in wickedness, then those wicked desires rule us and guide us rather than God. And the fruit, the destructive fruit of that wickedness is readily available for all to see. Division, conflict, hatred, emptiness. God is not passive towards wickedness. And so we read, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Which leads us to the final indictment, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. This final indictment, this closing indictment against Israel is this. Israel is intentionally reversing the way of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 make this clear when we read that there are those that are issuing iniquitous decrees or sinful decrees. And there are those who keep writing laws of oppression in place. These practices are employed to take advantage of the most needy of their society. Israel's engagement with wickedness now has caused the most fearful of all results. They no longer represent the character of the Lord in their lives. For I mean, we can look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, and we see a picture of the character of God that Israel was to reflect, by the way. In Deuteronomy 10, he says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, 
the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And Israel now is taking advantage of the fatherless and the widow. And they're issuing laws and decrees to do so. The awfulness of sin and wickedness in Israel is now completely laid bare. Theologically, they are living out in their society complete anti-God principles. And in doing so, have lost their identity as God's ambassadors in the world. And practically, they are taking advantage of the most needy. And this is the progression of wickedness, brothers and sisters. It begins with a personal prideful stance against the holiness of God. God, I don't need your way. I can determine my own way. And it ultimately will result in a society that is living in anti-God ways. In fact, so much so that the ways of God are seen not just as antiquated, but frankly as a threat. And the full exposure of the horrific nature of sin and wickedness is laid out for all to see in Israel. And for these people, there is nothing before them but the full judgment of God. As we look at the verses 3 and 4 of chapter 10, we see very clearly that these people are not able to utter the words of David when David says in the midst of his distress that God is my refuge and my fortress. Rather, for these individuals, for those who operate in wickedness, the day of God's coming judgment means that they are placed in the center of his judgment with nowhere to run. There is nowhere to hide because God's, God is not passive towards wickedness. And so we read, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. You should have that memorized now. The anger of God is present and his hand of wrath is ready to strike this nation of Israel who are a prideful people, who are followers of man, who are full of conflict and a people who intentionally embrace a pattern of living that is opposite the character of the Lord. They are a wicked nation. And I wonder, even as we say these things, I wonder if the indictments against Israel might echo in our own hearts as we consider our own wickedness. Are there any similarities? Are there similarities between Israel and the practice of our hearts, the desires of our hearts? But even in the pronouncement of judgment, there are whispers of grace. You see, the grace of God is often seen in the pronouncement of judgment. For as God pronounces impending judgment for wickedness, that very pronouncement is an opportunity for repentance. And as we end our text today, it is absolutely vital that we end by looking at the biblical context in which this prophet Isaiah pronounces the judgment of Israel in our passage of Scripture. You see, the warning of judgment in 9, 8 through 10, 4 immediately follows chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, which is the pronouncement of the Messiah. The pronouncement of the coming son of David. 
who will, by the way, bring with him an end of all oppression and judgment, who will bring perfect peace, who will bring an eternal rule of wisdom and righteousness, unlike the ones that Israel was experiencing previously. It is God who will deliver through this son of David, the Messiah. This son of David will be the one who will deliver the people from darkness and the death of wickedness. This is right before the segment on the God's judgment. And the warning for Israel in 9, 8 through 10, 4 is soon followed by chapter 10, verse 20 through 27, which speaks about salvation for the remnant of the Israelites who lean on the Lord, the Holy One, verse 20. And so there in the middle of these two passages of the grace of God is the judgment of God spoken. And on either side of the judgment of God being spoken is this message of grace, God's preservation for his people. You see, the prophet Isaiah is preaching about the judgment of God upon wickedness in the context of preaching about God's grace. And that's where we must end today. Perhaps as you heard the indictments against Israel, you have felt the sting of your own wickedness. And maybe, just maybe, you've never considered the fact that you and I are actually wicked people. The state of our lives are such that we actually actively step against God and his reign in our heart. The pursuits of our hearts are intentional against the reign and the rule. It's not as if we're just ambivalent. We are actively acting against his reign. And remember this, any amount of wickedness within us, the wickedness of a heart that is unrepentant and prideful before God, well, that wicked heart, that unrepentant wicked heart is subject to the wrath of God. But this is not the end of the story. You need not remain a subject of the wrath of God. You need not stop with, for all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. It need not be the verse that defines your interaction with the holy God. What is the hope for Israel in the midst of their wickedness? The hope is the active grace of God given to those who cry out to him in the midst of their wickedness and plead for the holy God to give them infinite grace. I mean, Isaiah begins this book in chapter 1, verse 18, with this wonderfully familiar sentence. When he says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins, wickedness, are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Do you understand that this is an invitation from God to sinners, to wicked people? This is the holy God saying to sinful man, saying to you and me, you do not need to remain in your sin. You do not need to remain as objects of my wrath. The wickedness that consumes you and leaves you with less than before, all that can be filled with the mercy and grace of God at his invitation. It doesn't need to be this way. There doesn't need to be wickedness reigning in your heart. You do not need to stand in the place of judgment against God. And that's the very nature of a warning, isn't it? 
to tell you of another way. Please, in the midst of wickedness, there is danger coming, but there's another way. Take it. You may have heard me repeat numerous times today that God is not passive towards wickedness. And that's where this sermon leads us. Right to that point. God is not passive towards wickedness. And his action is found in his judgment of wickedness and in his forgiveness for those who are repentant of their wickedness. See, God is active in overcoming wickedness. When we look at the New Testament, we see that God is active in overcoming wickedness at the cross of Jesus Christ. We read in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. God is active in overcoming wickedness. And God is active in giving forgiveness. For we read in Romans 10:9, if you confess your wickedness with your mouth and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you might be saved? No, you will be saved. He is active in giving forgiveness. And God is active in giving grace, mercy, and new life for those who surrender to his good and merciful reign. Titus 2, 11 through 14 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. That's a lot to say, but amen, right? God is not passive towards wickedness, but for those who repent and surrender to the good reign of his good mercy and good grace, he is active in giving full forgiveness. I wonder, are you hearing the warning today? Don't be like Harry and hear the warning and reject if you feel the wickedness of your heart rising to the top today, understand that you do not need to remain at, as a source of God's judgment. You can and will be forgiven by the grace of Christ at the cross of Christ. Hear the warning today. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now, Lord, may you do work among the heart of your people, speaking your forgiveness, speaking your grace, speaking your overwhelming mercy into our hearts. I thank you, Father, for the warning that we receive in your scripture that at the same time as we are warned, we are given the opportunity for repentance. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be a repentant people who proclaim you to be our king, who live our lives in complete and total surrender to you all the days that you give us, ultimately that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. 
In your name we pray, amen.